Today on Against the Grain, he's one of the most important African-American leaders you've probably never heard of. Ben Fletcher was a trailblazing anti-capitalist and labor leader, heading up the powerful multiracial Philadelphia-based Dock Workers Union. Historian Peter Cole has made it his life's work to unearth the contributions of Fletcher, who was jailed for his politics, and has left a legacy from which we can still learn. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Ben Fletcher was a leader of the Industrial Workers of the World, the most integrated militant union of early 20th century America, with a remarkable ability to unite dock workers across the bounds of race and ethnicity. Yet Fletcher is almost unknown, including on the left, Peter Cole has aimed to set that situation right with his book, Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly. I should mention that the book is published by PM Press, and I have a connection with PM. Peter Cole teaches history at Western Illinois University and is the founder and co-director of the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project. Peter, Ben Fletcher was born in 1890. What were his origins as much as they're known? Yeah, so Ben Fletcher's early life, and honestly, much of his life, are less known than they could be. But most importantly, he was born in 1890 um, in the city of Philadelphia. Then that was the third biggest city in the country. And he was African-American, born to parents who had migrated to the city of Philadelphia not long prior. Um, his parents came from Virginia. His father, definitely. His mother, maybe. Um, from Maryland. And we don't even know much about his parents. They were born in the 1850s. Very likely they were born enslaved, although that's not certain either. There's no definitive answer. Um, and he was born in Philadelphia in a, now what's called South Philadelphia. And that was a heavily industrialized area, a very diverse area. Um, it did have the la largest black population outside of the South but they were not the dominant population, even in the neighborhood where Fletcher largely grew up. Um, he would have lived with on the same streets with Irish and Irish Americans, with East European Jews, um, with Italians, especially from Southern Italy um, and other European immigrant groups. Right. Um, and it was an old city for America. So he would have basically walked around his old neighborhood. Um, but uh, we know that he never finished high school. Um, and that sometime in his teens got a job um, and started working. Uh, we know his mother passed away actually before he was 10 years old and that they moved frequently, which was not uncommon for renters. Uh, and so in his early life, it was actually quite typical of a working class black um, family in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, there is no hints in his parents' backgrounds that Ben Fletcher would become the revolutionary unionist that he soon became. And he ultimately became someone working on the docks. And I wanted to ask you, what was the situation and political culture of dock workers in the early 20th century, including in Philadelphia? So Philadelphia, since it was such an important and large industrial city, its port was very large and vital for the country. Um, it might have been the fifth busiest port. It would have received all sorts of um, raw materials coming in and export of all sorts of manufactured goods. Everything I say from battleships to button hooks might be manufactured or were manufactured in, in Philadelphia. Dock workers generally was a crappy job, right? Um, that's, of course, why a young black man ended up getting it, right? Um, most jobs were simply not open to black men or black women, regardless of ability, education, or skill. Um, white employers in Philadelphia, but around the country, simply didn't hire black men or black women for most jobs, period, right? Um, and even though black people were citizens, even though black people's generally first language was English, um, white employers consistently would hire foreigners and non-English speakers for the same jobs that African-Americans often could do, right? Um, uh, so therefore, the opportunities that black men and black women had in Philadelphia or New York, or Chicago, or Boston, were extremely limited. W.E.B. Du Bois's first book actually was about Philadelphia, published in 1899, called The Philadelphia Negro, and he basically said, 
racism defines the experience of black people, but particularly at work. Um, so dock work is the sort of job that was called casual, um, which meant that you didn't have a steady job. You got hired by the shift or the ship. So you'd have to walk to the riverfront, the Delaware River on the east side of Philadelphia. Fletcher would have easily been able to walk, say, approximately a mile uh, from the area where he lived. Um, and then you get hired um, on the riverfront along Delaware Avenue. Um, but you have no guarantee of getting hired. 500 men might show up for 100 jobs. At this time, all the workers in this industry were men or boys. Um, and so Fletcher would have had to compete for work in what was nicknamed the shape-up. Um, and uh, this was the case in cities, port cities around the U.S. and outside of the U.S. And so dock workers generally hated the shape-up because they understood intuitively, but also by experience, how exploitative it was. It basically divides workers, makes them competitors, and drives down wages. And the employers pick and choose um, based on who they're friends with, who's maybe of the same race, the same religion, the same neighborhood, who's willing to give a bribe to the hiring boss, etc. And so Fletcher, in his teens, started to work on the waterfront, loading and unloading ships on the Delaware River. But even just getting a job was tough. Um, and employers also love diversity on some levels because they presume that um, racial, ethnic, and national differences will weaken workers by dividing them. And so at that time in Philadelphia, but also in other port cities, um, uh, it would not be uncommon for gangs to be segregated by race, so a white gang or a black gang, but also segregated by ethnicity. So you might in Philadelphia have a Polish gang and an Italian gang and an Irish gang, and employers would basically use ethnic prejudices um, as a whip to get workers to toil faster, harder, and longer. Um, and so Fletcher's um, would have been in this milieu, and this was not a, um, although workers might be sort of collectively um, share the same problems, low pay, exploitative, dangerous, dangerous work conditions, um, they might occasionally get together in collective action, maybe to form a union or a strike. But even though there was occasional collective action, I wouldn't say that this group of workers was very political. And the main union in this industry at that time was called the International Longshoremen's Association, which still exists today as part of the AFL-CIO, was notorious for being pretty conservative and very dominated by its Irish-American leadership in New York City, um, which also was racist. And so African-American dock workers in particular were often excluded from the union um, or put into what might be nicknamed Jim Crow locals um, and really denied many job opportunities even in the industry. And so black um, workers like Fletcher would have um, both had to sort of compete against other workers for jobs, um, deal with the fact that employers were racist, um, but also deal with the fact that many of their coworkers, as well as the dominant union in this industry, um, treated African-Americans as secondary, second class, or even just um, uh, excluded them entirely. You've just described how employers were very effective on the docks in separating workers and pitting them against each other, both by setting them against each other through ethnicity and race, but also the shape-up system, which makes workers compete with each other. And yet, dock workers, which you've written a lot about uh, in your work, also have a history of militancy. Now, that may have not been the particular history in Philadelphia, but I wonder if you could tell us why that is, why dock workers and, and more broadly maritime workers have been often on the front lines of radicalism and labor militancy. Yeah, of course. Uh, all you said is spot on. Um, it's twofold. One, the industry itself, the work itself, inculcates a... Um, collective identity, even though workers might be weak, there's um, examples around the world, not just in the United States, not just in Philadelphia, of dock workers and sort of parallel workers, sailors, people who work aboard ships, same industry, right? Um, being among the, the, the groups of workers who are the first to experience actually industrialization and often uh, the first to sort of organize informally, um, later formally, in groups in order to sort of press demands, right? Um, so even before there were unions among dock workers and or sailors, back in the 1760s in, the, in London, England, um, then the greatest port city in the world and the most powerful empire in the world, 
the very word we associate with worker power, strike, originates. Yeah, um, because it was dock workers and sailors who wanted a raise in the Port of London. Sailors took down the sails of their ships, which is to say they, they, they prevented the ship from moving, right? And the nautical term for taking down the sails of a ship is to strike the sail, right? And that becomes the word that we all use to this day in English to describe work stoppages, right? And so that tells us something about the long history of maritime workers actually having power, understanding they have power, and using their power, right? Um, and so we have to understand that this is sort of complicated, that the industry, the nature of the work, Right, is creating a collective identity. Simultaneously, there are other forces at play that weaken workers' ability to work together for common goals. Right, um, and so there's that hardwired into the industry. It's not unique to that industry either. We might think about coal mining or mining in general as another industry that often creates a collective consciousness among workers, um, not just um, against employers, but also in solidarity and sympathy with each other. For example, because of the industry, the work is dangerous. Who's going to look out for you if uh, that cargo net breaks and a, a load falls on your head? Or if you get um, sort of fall down the hold of a ship, who's going to come for you? Who's going to look for you? Who's going to try to prevent you from dying? It's probably your coworkers who can understand because they experience the same conditions, right? Um, I do think it's really important to highlight that um, those sorts of conditions in an industry do not guarantee worker power or um, left-wing organizing, for that matter, definitely not. Um, uh, other factors include the rise of the industrial workers of the world, um, the IWW, nickname, members nicknamed the Wobblies, um, Wobblies who were formed a union in 1905 in Chicago that spread across the U.S., spread actually around the world within a decade of its founding um, prior to World War I. I the IWW was an overtly um, anti-capitalist union, and um, the IWW, which Fletcher joined before he actually helped form a dock worker local of the IWW in Philadelphia, Fletcher already was becoming, in other words, radicalized prior to, he's already working on the waterfront, but before he's formed a union, helped form a union on the waterfront. Um, the IWW has um, not only anti-capitalist ideology, it also has an anti-racist ideology, although they would not have used that term then. But from their very origins, they contrasted themselves with the unions part of the American Federation of Labor, and the ILA was part of the American Federation of Labor, which was often xenophobic, sexist, and or racist. And so the, the two parts to the equation are basically the nature of the work, but also this particular union that brings with it a politics that's um, very much class conscious, very internationalist, very anti-racist, and that Fletcher became the um, key leader in the Philadelphia dock worker group that then brought the IWW to the waterfront and resulted in the IWW representing dock workers for nearly 10 years and really being the best example in the United States of America of the IWW putting its um, theory of anti-racism into practice. Well, tell us more about that. You mentioned earlier that the dock workers of Philadelphia were not especially politicized. So why would they join the industrial workers of the world who, as you say, believed in one big union that cut across race and gender and nationality and were explicitly anti-capitalist? I mean, they were fighting for bread and butter demands, but they were also fighting for the end of the wage system. So why would these workers join a union uh, headed up by the IWW rather than the International Longshoremen's Association, which, as you say, has had a more conservative history. Yeah, well, so that's a deeply important question, one that I've thought about for 25 years and one I still don't have a perfect answer to. Um, so I think first and foremost, the fact that um, the dock workers had a leader like Ben Fletcher, who was already a member of the IWW, in other words, one of their own people, um, was already involved, that's no doubt pivotal. Um, in particular, racism has been such a fault line, as we know, across American history, um, not just at work, but definitely at work, right? Um, so in 1913, which is when the IWW formally chartered its dock worker union in Philadelphia, which was called Local 8, in spring of 1913, which originated after, um, out of a successful two-week strike, 
Um, when Local 8 was chartered, about one-third of the members of the union were African-American, about one-third of the members were Irish and or Irish-American, and about one-third of the members were other European immigrants, an incredibly diverse workforce. That's the sort of workforce that usually results in no union being able to organize because workers can't get along. Right? In particular, for African-Americans in this era, when many African-Americans are migrating to the city of Philadelphia or other industrial cities out of the South, a lot of these guys have no um, industrial experience, no experience other than working on a farm, right, if they move from the South, and um, are not automatically sort of pro-union, don't really have experience with unions, but also are highly suspicious of their white coworkers. And in Philadelphia, remember a lot of those coworkers were Irish Americans, and in America's cities, including Philadelphia, there is generations by the 19-teens of um, racial tensions in which Irish Americans actually often are trying to define themselves as white by proving that they're anti-black, up to and including regular and repeated incidents of violence perpetrated against black people in the city of Philadelphia, other cities too. Right? So having Fletcher is actually key, right? because that basically, um, uh, Fletcher is also widely known and reported on at that time and subsequently as being a brilliant orator and organizer. And so having Fletcher say, look, you know, the IWW is anti-racist, don't just believe them, believe me, right? Um, now, for the European immigrants, who are they, I always like to point out that, you know, racism is a concept that we aren't born with, we learn it, right? Um, and so Polish, Lithuanian, Italian immigrants, they don't know what white and black are in the U.S. context. They have to learn that. My point being that actually the immigrant generation might be less racist than their children, right, who are born and raised in a society that white supremacy is in the air we breathe, right? And uh, for the Irish and Irish Americans, well, of course, although some of them were part of a racist culture, not all of them were, there were also Irish and Irish American leaders in the IWW. The most well-known nationwide was a woman named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn from New York City, um, who as a teenager became nicknamed the Rebel Girl because of her fiery oration um, and leadership in the IWW. She later went on to become a member of the Communist Party. Um, so what you've got is people from different groups who might have an affinity for each other. You have a union that um, is open to people of our sorts. Um, at that time also the AFL wasn't always at organizing actually European immigrants. Right? And also the tactics of the IWW. Right? Um, so in their initial strike, for example, um, the IWW in its strike committee made sure that there was at least one member of every ethnic group or racial group on the strike committee, on the leadership committee. Right? They had done that previously in Lawrence, Massachusetts in the so-called Bread and Roses strike, which was this massive textile strike among European immigrant women in um, 1912, the year before. And so the IWW didn't just talk about that were all equal, they actually operationalized policies that demonstrated how equality looks in practice. Yeah, um, and the IWW practiced what often are referred to as direct action tactics, um, often very militant, where they would um, declare short strikes or threaten to on the job. These sorts of tactics, um, which um, require a level of commitment on the part of the workers to them, but um, demonstrate themselves often to be successful, right? And so, I, um, like many of us know, victory, um, success breeds more success, right? Um, and so, as members of the new newly chartered Local 8 start to see the successes, wage increases granted by the employers, racially integrating the gangs immediately, integrating the leadership ranks of the local, these are all sorts of how the ideas of the IWW were put into practice on the Philadelphia waterfront. And then probably, we can't honestly know for sure what all 5,000 of these guys were thinking, yeah, um, but the sort of we can see what they did in action and we might reasonably interpret um, what's going on. At least that's what I am suggesting here. Historian Peter Cole is my guest. We're discussing the legendary African-American labor organizer and leader of the Industrial Workers of the World, Ben Fletcher, and his times. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So as Local Aid is established, how did they regard their role both in terms of taking on the bosses, including the shape-up system that you mentioned that really pitted workers against each other, and also how did they regard the importance of organizing other workers? 
Yeah, those are wonderful questions. And so Fletcher was one of the leading organizers in Local 8. He wasn't the only one. There were other um, members. Uh, one guy named was John Walsh, another guy named E.F. Doree, another guy named Walter Neff, um, John J. McElvie, um, Abraham Moses, and others, right? And so um, there was a cadre of leaders in Local 8, black and white, um, native-born and immigrant, who were, um, well, who were the leaders, right? Like um, Fletcher is definitely the most well-known and the most widely regarded in, nationwide um, when you, one reads the IWW press. Um, you see frequent references, right? Um, so with the shape-up, so, you know, the IWW um, members in Local 8 hated the shape-up, as I already had mentioned. Um, they abolished the shape-up, right? Um, so rather than having to go to different piers on the waterfront, say at 7 a.m. or at 7 p.m. for day or night shifts, now, after Local 8 was instituted, the, uh, the, the union had a hall near the riverfront on um, the, the main thoroughfare was Delaware Avenue, just off Delaware Avenue. Um, now, we call this I-95, and so the Philadelphia riverfront area, the old waterfront area, looks very different than it used to be, unfortunately. Right? Um, but the employers would have to call up the union hall. Right? The union would then dispatch its members to different work sites. Yeah. Um, and so they just obliterated the shape up. They had the power to do so, and employers accepted that. Right? Um, that's another example of what actually this union, what this powerful union can do. It can actually make one's work conditions radically better overnight. Right? Um, and so not only that, the IWW uh, Local 8, when it was then dispatching its members to work sites, it dispatched them in racially integrated gangs. Right? And so it will break down these racial and ethnic tensions. And what happens when people start to get to know each other? Well, of course, sometimes we hate each other. But actually, oftentimes, we realize that we're not so different from each other. When we start working together, we see we have common interests. We also, uh, over time, might essentially develop friendships. Yeah, um, and so both in the union hall, but on the job, right? Um, again, Local 8 will operationalize um, integrated racial practices. Yeah, um, the IWW ideas also will percolate into the Local 8 in various other ways. So one example is the IWW always was trying to organize more people, right? They understood that um, if you had a successful union drive, that wasn't enough. Right? Um, so this industry is, uh, dock workers are part of a larger industry. The marine transport workers was the name of their industrial union. And even that's part of the larger transportation industry. So in the spring of 1913, Local 8 is chartered. They win their two-week strike in May of 1913. That same summer and fall, we know from, well, the evidence that it, um, exists, right, that they started to organize other workers on the waterfront, other people who are not dock workers, but who also worked in related industries, but also were in neighboring work sites. So for example, um, at that time in Americans, but also other in, um, industrial port cities, unrefined sugar would be delivered from the Caribbean and then would be refined wharf side or riverside or ocean side and then distributed to local consumers, right? And so these sugar ships came up from Cuba, right, um, with holes full of unrefined sugar. It's also worth noting that a lot of these sailors who worked the sugar ships were um, either Caribbean people or from Spain or Portugal, many of whom had radical traditions of their own, some of whom were wobblies and anarchists, right? And so there was actually an affinity between um, dock workers and sailors often, right? Um, but they started to organize sugar refinery workers. There were several thousand uh, in Philadelphia who often were of the same ethnic and racial groups and lived in the same neighborhoods, right? And so you're walking to the uh, Pier 28 to work a ship. Well, just um, the next pier over might be the sugar refinery. And guess what? You're going to try to organize them too. They have started to organize people who worked on the small riverboat craft that any sort of port city had, right, especially in that era. Um, they started to organize what we would call Teamsters and people who worked on the railroad piers because the railroads owned their own piers and had separate employment systems. And so they immediately tried to organize. And when they did this, importantly also, they always demanded the same wages. And so in America, but also in capitalist economies generally, different workers get paid different amounts. And a lot of actually workers believe that they should get paid more or less based on their supposed skill, right? Notably, the IWW was calling for equalization of wages across the industry. Um, 
with very limited success, it's worth noting, right? Um, but nevertheless, the fact that when they would go on strike or try to organize, they were also often calling for raising the lower paid workers up to the levels that um, the higher wage workers earned is noteworthy for their commitment to equality, right? Um, and so the IWW generally, and Local 8 in particular, practice what I called in my book, Wobblies on the Waterfront, radical egalitarianism, um, both in terms of racial equality, but also in terms of equalization of wages for work, regardless of the work one does. No one, as you note, wrote a, you know, a biography of Ben Fletcher during his lifetime. He didn't write a memoir. And as a historian, 100 years later, piecing back together what can be gleaned about his life and times and thinking does pose some challenges. Obviously, part of Ben Fletcher's legacy is just seen through the organizing work that he did and the tremendous power that was built by this union of radical workers, Local 8, and the way they took on these labor demands and and in many ways transcended narrow notions of what workers could and should be calling for. But uh, would you say there's enough evidence looking at what is left behind for Ben Fletcher about his particular orientation regarding these broad questions of labor organizing, of how workers should fight capital? You know, that's a wonderful question. It's a hard question, and it's also one I've thought about a long time. So um, Ben Fletcher, like many members of the IWW, didn't have much formal education. And also, although they were often very well-read, um, very well spoken, and I would say very intelligent, um, didn't write sort of lengthy treatises on, you know, what does, you know, the IWW future look like, um, weren't theoreticians generally. Um, uh, one of uh, Ben Fletcher's friends and a better known member of the IWW, William Big Bill Haywood, famously quipped one time, I've never read Marx, but I've got the Marx of capital all over me, right? Um, and I would apply that same thing to Fletcher. Right. Um, and so Fletcher um, obviously is well read and obviously is, is intelligent because we have correspondence of his. Right. And so we don't know enough about I don't know enough. No one knows enough about what Ben Fletcher was thinking um, and his personal life. Right. Um, but fortunately, we do have um, a lot of his letters um, at, or at least some of his letters. Right. Um, from various places. It's ironic. But one of the best sources of information about Ben Fletcher was the fact that after he was arrested, um, put on trial as part of a mass trial during World War I, and then imprisoned in Leavenworth at a federal pen for several years, all of his correspondence was read and copied, right? Um, and so both incoming and outgoing. And so we have sometimes letters to him, but also letters from him. And we also have some correspondence of his later in life. Um, and so we know that he continued to believe as he believed as a younger man, right? Um, but we also know that um, he believed very much that um, the industrial union model that the IWW supported, the um, anti-racist model, but also the sort of the anti-capitalist model, um, that he fully embraced these ideas. And d despite repression, government persecution, but also then the decline of the IWW in the 1920s and 30s, I mean, it became far less influential um, and, and far less powerful than it had been during its heyday of the ninth, or essentially the first 20 years of the uh, 20th century, right? Like uh, that he remained committed to these ideas. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today I'm joined by Peter Cole. He teaches history at Western Illinois University and his book, Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly, is the subject of our discussion today. Ben Fletcher was a leader of the Industrial Workers of the World, the most integrated militant union in early 20th century America. Peter Cole is also author of Dock Worker Power. So you had been discussing the establishment of this IWW union, Local 8, led by Ben Fletcher and others in Philadelphia in the second decade of the 20th century. And I wanted to ask you about how the U.S. entry into World War I affected the dock workers there. War is, of course, complicated. It can have very contradictory effects on the power of workers. On the one hand, it can give 
elites more ability to repress dissent under the guise of the war effort, something we've certainly seen here uh, in the United States. On the other hand, workers can also have greater ability to shut things down and get concessions from elites. Uh, what did that look like for Local 8, the dock workers in uh, Philadelphia? Yeah, war is, has so many implications. World War One, in particular, I mean, it really, it's hard to imagine the Russian Revolution happening without World War One. Yeah, I mean, one of the most important events in the history of the world. Um, in Philadelphia, there's um, painful ironies. I also think about my work on the San Francisco Bay Area dock workers in the 1960s, right? War actually is good for many economies, at least in the short term, including those who work in port cities. And so dock workers, the IWW never took an official stand against the war. Um, the IWW in its publications repeatedly criticized the European war, even before the US entry, as basically workers getting killed by other workers on behalf of the bosses, um, corporations and kings and whatever, right? Like um, that's a logical and I think appropriate, if easy sort of critique after the U.S. declared war, the IWW was deeply mindful, its leaders, that the war could be used as a tool to destroy the IWW. So the IWW intentionally did not take an official stand, either pro or anti-war. Uh, in Philadelphia, there's actually more work, right? Um, and so, you know, what does that mean if you're anti-war, but actually the job that you have literally is loading up a ship full of weapons for, to be shipped over to Belgium or France? Well. That is what it is, right? Like, I mean, um, the, uh, it's easy and not necessarily wrong to sort of criticize Local 8 for not taking a, a stance, although you could easily say that the other ports that um, were shipping out war material and cargo um, to the European th war, um, you know, they, the sort of uh, ships could just be relocated to New York, to Boston, to Baltimore if you don't work them in Philadelphia, whatever that may be, right? Um, as soon as Congress declared war in, 19, in the spring of 1917, right, um, almost immediately Congress passed a law called the Espionage Act, which is still on the books, and Sedition Act a little after that. Those laws basically criminalized dissent, which is to say, if you spoke out against the war, if you wrote against the war, you could be um, punished and sent to federal prison. And that, in fact, was what was done to the top 100 leaders of the IWW, including Ben Fletcher and five other members of the IWW in Philadelphia. Um, five of the six were active in Local H. A six was another wobbly in Philadelphia, who in 1918 were part of a mass trial in federal court in Chicago, in Cook County, um, imprisoned in Cook County Jail during the trial, um, where Fletcher and a hundred other approximately wobblies were basically accused of interfering with the war effort, inter interfering with the draft, um, criticizing the government, um, largely based on their words printed prior to the war. In fact, no evidence was introduced at trial against any of the local eight members, including Ben Fletcher, to specify what they had done to commit espionage or sedition. So basically, the First Amendment is thrown out the window, right? Um, and after the longest trial in US history up until that time, it took over four months, um, the jury came back in under an hour. All people, all men, um, there was, it was all men on trial. Um, all men guilty on all counts, um, sentenced to 10 to 20 years in Leavenworth, right, in federal prison. Um, and the pr sentence began almost immediately in the fall of 1918. Fletcher famously turned to Big Bill Haywood during um, the trial once and said to Haywood, you know, um, Fletcher being known for being funny, right, will turn to Fletcher and say, you know, if it wasn't for me, there'd be no color at all in this trial, right, because um, he was the only African-American on the dock, right. Um, but after the judge was reading the sentences, he'll turn to Haywood again and quip to uh, Haywood, um, the judge isn't using proper grammar this morning, and Haywood will say, how's that been? And Fletcher will rep respond saying, well, it's because the judge's sentences are much too long, right? Um, and those, those jokes actually are widely reported in and around the IWW press, right? And so Fletcher be is known for being funny, right? Um, he's not the only wobbly who uses humor, right? Um, but those are sort of the rare examples all too rare where we can record, we, we read about sort of jokes because how often do we record our funny lines, right? Like, um, and so the short version is, is that uh, the war was used as a whip to try to destroy the IWW. And it actually didn't entirely succeed, but it at least partially succeed. 
It didn't succeed actually in Philadelphia. The Wobblies, even though their leaders were all imprisoned, Local 8 held on to power um, until the, almost the end of 1922. So despite massive government repression, um, although dramatically weakened, um, actually the dock workers in Philadelphia continued to sort of be represented by the IWW. Um, until, well, for a few more years beyond, um, even though Fletcher will be serving time in Leavenworth and he'll actually be released from Leavenworth in late 1921 um, uh, and return to Philadelphia. Although, because their sentences are um, reduced but not pardoned, um, if Fletcher or anyone else who's allowed out of prison um, commits another crime or is punished uh, by some court, right, he could be sent back to Leavenworth. Um, to finish his time, as it were, although that never happens. What was the campaign like to free him? Well, um, so Fletcher, as um, the only African-American in, in, in the imprisoned ranks, if you will, um, is both um, part of a, uh, there's an effort to try to get either the president at that time, Harding after Wilson, to pardon them, but also to sort of um, uh, maybe get rid of uh, their sentences. Um, the IWW leads this campaign. But because Fletcher is well-connected among African-American radicals in New York, in Boston, in Chicago, and other places, um, you know, the famous black magazine called The Messenger, which was co-edited by A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owen out of Harlem in New York City, um, will publish multiple stories to try to get Ben Fletcher freed or to raise awareness about the imprisonment of Fletcher. Um, he'll be connected to a man named William Monroe Trotter, who was a prominent radical black newspaper man in Boston who published a paper called The Guardian that's sort of a like a more radical version was often critical of the NAACP for not being radical enough right um, and Fletcher will also correspond we know with all these people and others right and so there'll be actually a campaign out of Philadelphia to try to get Fletcher and other um, wobblies freed from prison but in case of Fletcher that campaign will also include um, black people really in other eastern cities who are no Fletcher, because Fletcher frequently traveled up and down the Atlantic coast um, before and after his time in prison um, to organize on behalf of the IWW. Peter Cole is my guest. We're talking about his book, Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly. He's a historian and teaches at Western Illinois University. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. What was Fletcher's relationship to the American Communist Party? And how did tensions with the American Communist Party shape the fortunes of Local 8? Well, that's an important question. It's a sort of a complicated um, issue. And so, you know, when the IWW was born and organized, including in Philadelphia, the Communist Party did not exist, right? The Communist Party was a product of the um, aftermath of the birth of the Soviet Union when people who are sympathetic to the new Soviet Union start to form communist parties in many countries around the world, including the US. Um, the IWW at first was deeply th um, supportive of and um, thrilled about the birth of a socialist nation in, in Eastern Europe, as were leftists around the world. Um, however, over time, really within a few years, there start to be rifts um, that emerged between those who supported the CP um, in the US those who supported the USSR, and those who were anti-capitalist but suspicious of or hostile to the communist vision of how to achieve socialism, right? Um, and without going into too much detail, right, um, the communists want the IWW to basically all realign and join the CP because it's the largest, most militant, most successful left-wing organization in the United States. And so it's not surprising that the CP wants to basically get, if you will, um, the support of the IWW. And I should also note the IWW operated in many other countries and similar issues were happening around the world. But also even among anarchistic organizations and anarchists, um, in other words, anti-capitalists, anti but who were not communists, were also trying to figure out what's your position, if you will, in the Soviet Union. Um, the Soviet Union will, as I said, already want to sort of take control of right, um, the IWW. The IWW is sympathetic to um, the socialist project in, in Eastern Europe, but is worried that this sort of top-down, sort of more authoritarian 
um, approach is the wrong approach to achieving socialism, um, or at least their vision of it. And so, you know, when the IWW refuses essentially to simply fold up his tent and join the CP and the Communist International based in Moscow, the Comintern, right? Um, in the summer of 1920, right, the local eight is accused of loading weapons aboard a ship that was uh, the U.S. government was providing military aid to the opposition to the Soviets, right, in what you could call the Russian Civil War, in which the Reds were fighting the so-called whites, whites who were supporting a return to maybe a czarist Russia, right. Um, there's no evidence that members of local eight were loading weapons. They were accused of it by left-wingers in New York City, including people who were affiliated with the communists. Right. The IWW, afraid of being um, uh, basically committing a crime, right, uh, if you will, a moral crime, the crime of helping the capitalists against the communists, will temporarily suspend Local 8. Fletcher is not around at this moment. He's actually in prison. Right? Like, um, but Fletcher will be out on bail shortly thereafter. And what Fletcher will say is, and other people in Local 8, is that this was a fabricated charge made up by communists who want to basically undermine the IWW and the US if the IWW and the US will not just realign with the CP, right? Um, now, the evidence for that is circumstantial at best. Like I said, there's no evidence that dock workers in Philadelphia were loading weapons, period, for the um, opponents of the Soviet Union. In fact, in Seattle, um, the US was loading weapons um, for um, white forces in Siberia, and Seattle dock workers refused to load those weapons on at least one occasion. And geographically, it would make much more sense for the US to try to arm its allies out of the Pacific port of Seattle as opposed to the Atlantic port of Philadelphia. Right? Like uh, Fletcher will say, and he knew much more than I did, I wasn't there in 1920, right? that basically this is fabricated charges made to take out the IWW's most powerful and most important integrated local. Um, because the IWW refuses to basically give support to the Communist Party, right, in the U.S. or the Soviet Union. Um, notably, Emma Goldman and others who will be shipped, will be deported by the U.S. government to the Soviet Union in the same era, uh, many of whom will become disillusioned with the Soviet Union soon thereafter. Uh, upon arrival, um, Emma Goldman most famously will sort of then leave the Soviet Union depressed about what she found there, right, which is to say that perhaps the IWW is not wrong to be critical of how the Soviets were in the early period. I appreciate that a lot of people like to bash Joseph Stalin. I'm happy to do that too. Um, but remember, this is actually when Lenin was still alive and in power in the Soviet Union. Um, and so what we're seeing is basically debates within the left worldwide over different approaches to achieving a socialist society and world, right? And that those who are sympathetic to more IWW-like thinking, which is more anarchistic, more suspicious of state power, more interested in decentralized control, right, um, became increasingly um, uh, distant from the Soviets. This most famously emerges again in, 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 say, Spain in the late 30s, in Barcelona in particular, and George Orwell wrote a lot about that. If you're familiar with that, it's in a way not so different than what was happening in Philadelphia, right, in 1920, um, where there are bitter battles, really, on the left over who's in control and what sort of basically what our policies and, and, and theories are we're going to support, right? Fletcher will actually be somewhat sympathetic to, is, is less openly hostile to the communist, um, but nevertheless um, remains undeniably um, in the IWW. Some other Wobblies actually joined the communist. The most famous was his friend Big Bill Haywood, like who will jump bail and flee to the Soviet Union where he'll live the rest of his life, right? And so some Wobblies will join the communists, right? But most don't, and the organization refuses to, right? And that creates a rift, and over time in the 20s and 30s, as we know, the communists will become the dominant force on the left in the US and worldwide, and the Wobblies will decline, right? And so whether that was the wise choice or not is a question, right? Um, but that was what happened um, with Fletcher and with the IWW particularly. So uh, as you are saying, the IWW waned, as did Local 8 after all of the repression following World War I. And as you mentioned, the Communist Party then became the dominant force on the radical left in the United States in the 1930s. Ben Fletcher died in 1949. How would you characterize his last years? And more importantly, what do you think his legacy is? Because as you argue, he is one of the most important radical leaders of the United States, the labor movement, African-American leaders, and yet most of us have never heard of him. Yeah, so, 
you know, in um, around 1930, 31, Fletcher will move to New York City where he'll spend the rest of 18, the next 18 years of his life. Um, he was still an organizer for the IWW in the early 30s, according to the records. But um, in the mid-30s, he'll suffer a massive stroke. He'll have had health problems before that. Um, so in his 40s, he will actually um, go into significant physical decline. And he'll never be able to sort of hold a regular job again. He's um, married to a woman, a second wife at that point named Clara, who very likely is the breadwinner. They live in Brooklyn in a neighborhood called Bedford-Stuyvesant that at that time before World War II is actually not predominantly black, um, although it will later become an, um, heavily African-American as it's known today. Um, you know, so Fletcher will um, hold on to his beliefs. He'll be friends with people. He'll correspond with some people. He um, continues to be much loved. And so when he um, dies in 1949, he's buried in, in a cemetery in Brooklyn, New York Evergreens Cemetery, although he's buried in an unmarked grave because, well, we can guess he was poor, right? Um, and actually, there's some of us who are trying to sort of change that because uh, we want to sort of put a small marker at his gravesite, or at least in that section. Um, you know, Fletcher will not be influential in the 30s and 40s. Um, the IWW ideas will be. Many will note that the CIO unions that will be born and grow in the 30s and 40s will very much adopt many of the ideas of the IWW, in particular industrial unionism as a model. Um, as opposed to craft unionism, which the AFL was associated with, as well as being more open to women, black people, and immigrants, including Mexicans. And those ideas didn't originate with the IWW either, but the IWW you might consider as an important stepping stone um, to the CIO, especially its early decades when it was incredibly militant and grew to upwards of five, five million members around the United States and really sort of came to dominate um, mid-20th century radical unionism, albeit not as revolutionary as the IWW or the communists. Um, you know, the legacy of Fletcher, um, well, like, I mean, he is totally unknown, right? I mean, I've devoted a lot of my life to trying to raise awareness about him, and I think I've succeeded on some small scale. But the truth of the matter is, is that even in Philadelphia, a lot of radical black people don't know of Ben Fletcher, um, let alone nationwide or worldwide. Um, Fletcher represents, of course, what was possible, right? That you had this um, African-American, the most important African-American in the most important left-wing institution of the United States in the early 20th century. When America had become, it's worth pointing out, the most powerful economy in the world, right? Um, and soon to be the most powerful country in the world, right? Um, that in one of its largest cities, that Fletcher will lead um, really um, the most integrated union in terms of race and ethnicity of its generation, arguably up until that point into the history of the United States, and that then they maintain their power through direct action tactics. And we didn't even cover it, but the IWW actually refused to sign contracts in that era, right? And so they got raises for their members. They got increases in, um, they got their ranks integrated. They abolished the shape up, and they did this all through oral agreements because the IWW always wanted to maintain the potential power to strike whereas most even union contracts have no straight clauses in them in the United States, right? Um, and so um, what Fletcher and Local 8 was able to achieve over, the, uh, over nearly 10 years um, simply wasn't done, right? That Local 8 integrated itself 50 years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964, once and for all said racial integration should be the law of the land, right? That they did this from below, I say, as opposed to employers of the government instituting racial equality, that in fact, the workers themselves created racial equality through their own power and in opposition, right, to employers who only agreed to this because of worker power, right? Um, to me, these are examples of what well-organized workers can do, right? Um, and if you're discontent with your workplace and your country and world, well, like, I believe that actually the lessons, the history of Ben Fletcher and the union that he helped lead um, are instrumental in the 21st century. We still have yet to achieve what actually they achieved more than 100 years ago. We are almost out of time, but I wanted to ask you, speaking about the importance of history, about a project that you have founded and co-direct, which is the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project. Can you tell us what that is? I appreciate the chance. Thank you. Um, so, you know, in 1919, uh, that era was often referred to as the Red Summer because there was about 25 incidents of mass racial violence against black people across the country in the summer of 1919. Um, in Chicago, 
Um, there was in late July, uh, black kids were swimming in Lake Michigan and a white man on the beach of Lake Michigan started throwing rocks at these kids because these kids had crossed an invisible line in Lake Michigan and Eugene Williams, age 17, was killed for swimming while black, right? And that same night, gangs of Irish and Irish Americans on the south side of Chicago in Bridgeport invaded a black neighborhood and started to randomly attack black people and that became what became known as the race riot of 1919, in which 38 people were killed. The worst incident of racial violence in Chicago history, but it also shaped the, the, the city literally because it afterwards, there was a massive increase in racial segregation in city neighborhoods. No one knows this history, um, and the city has done almost nothing to commemorate it. Right? Um, based upon my life experience in Berlin, where I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time, I've gotten to know that Germany in recent decades um, has owned its history of the Holocaust in ways that most Americans cannot imagine. And one example is something in Germany called Stuppersteine, um, a German term for stumbling stones, plural, which means that you're walking down the streets of Berlin or Hamburg and you come across a small brass plaque embedded in a sidewalk outside of a residence where someone who was a victim of the Holocaust lived. And that reminds you, as you stumble across it metaphorically, that the Holocaust happened, not just somewhere else in Auschwitz, but right here in my place, and that maybe even my family or ancestors were a part of it in some capacity. Uh, the idea is essentially to import that idea to Chicago, 38 people killed. We are partnering with an art studio to create 38 markers that will be embedded in Chicago sidewalks if we uh, succeed um, at the locations where the people are killed so that people in Chicago today when they're walking around Chicago will be educated about, confronted by, reminded of this history which continues to shape our city of Chicago, that is, right, where I spend a significant part of my life, right? And so the idea is to use public art geographically dispersed as a way to provoke people to remember a history that has been conveniently disappeared, right? Because we in America have failed to achieve um, a accurate telling of our history, which is one of the reasons we failed to achieve racial equality in our life, in our times today, right? And so Germany is doing better in my opinion. I'm not the only person who thinks so, right? Um, and so this is an effort at creating public art in the city of Chicago, um, which has a notorious history of segregation. Um, a lot of people just don't know that that segregationist history has a lot to do with uh, the history of the riot of 1919. Fascinating. Peter Cole, thank you so much for your time today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much. Peter Cole is a historian. We've been discussing the legendary African-American labor organizer, IWW leader Ben Fletcher. Peter Cole is the editor of Ben Fletcher, The Life and Times of a Black Wobbly. And I should say in the interest of full disclosure that that book is published by PM Press and that I have a connection to PM Press. Peter Cole teaches history at Western Illinois University and is founder and co-director of the Chicago Race Riot of 1919 Commemoration Project. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Mm-hmm.